Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. Network said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Here's part two of my interview with Michael O'Neill. Was there one role that you lost, you went in for a read, and you lost it all these years later that still bugs you? You know, there are probably a lot of them. There, there, there really are probably a lot of them. I remember I wanted very badly, there was a, there was a, it was a series that was being done called From the Earth to the Moon. And it was a wonderful uh, series about about NASA and about the early astronauts and the and the and the incredible um, journey to as a program and and all these pioneers to get us to a place of launching at the moon. And so I actually wrote a note to the casting director. I said, "Listen, I watched every one of these launches as a child." And I watched leaning almost nose pressed to the television screen. I wanted to know every aspect of it. And you're doing, I think, the finest representation of that history and being done. And I really want to come in and read. Usually, you don't, they don't respond to that, right? But they did. And she brought me in. And I read for a character who was an astronaut. I don't think he ever got to fly. I think he was on, I can't even remember his, his exact name now, but he was critical inside command center. And I read for the character and the director did a thing that every actor I know cringes when it happens. He looked at me for a moment and he leaned forward and said very sincerely, you know, you're a really good actor. And that's always the precursor to know you're not getting this part. So as soon as he said it, I went, oh, no, oh, no, please say anything, but don't say that. And uh, he said it anyway. And I didn't get the role. And I still want to play that astronaut. You have to be a certain type for a certain role. How many law enforcement officers have you played? <laughs> that's That's been a good niche for you. You know, it has. Enough that people on the street sometimes will back away if they're up to no good. <laughs> I, 
I I was down in in Manhattan. I was in the subway in Manhattan, and I had on my you know Giants baseball cap, and it was late late at night. And this guy started to jump the turnstile, and I just glanced up, and our eyes met. And he was halfway over the turnstile, and he said, "Man, could you just look the other way once?" So I knew what was happening. He had me pegged as a cop, and I wasn't about to pretend otherwise because then you're in trouble. So I said, "They don't pay me to look the other way." And the guy backed over the stile and went left the subway station. So um, there are times, you know, Birmingham, there's a bakery there. I was having lunch with a friend and I finished my meal and got up to leave and stood up, took my jacket off the back of the chair and started to put it on. And there had been a woman sitting at the table next to us. And I, I knew she clocked me. I didn't know why. And as I was as I was putting my jacket on, she said, I know who you are. And I said, really? thinking, you know, she'd seen NCIS or something. She said, yeah, you're the cop that put me in jail. And I said, well, I'm glad to see you're doing better. And I passed away, you know, I, just sort, of, I sort of backed away. Yeah, so I, in answer, yes, Keith, I've played a lot of police officers. Well, you know, you had a memorable um, recurring role on uh, The West Wing, which was one of my favorite shows back in the day mm-hmm. um, as a uh, Secret Service agent, right? And uh, what I remember most about your performance in that is that you were you were very even, 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 even. And then when the daughter was kidnapped, there was an intensity that you brought to that moment. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? I do know exactly the scene. It's with John Spencer. Tell me about that. You know, I had been... Um, not in a formal way, Keith, but I, but the secret service agents one night, cause we would go back to DC to shoot and a lot of, they took me under their wing. So I learned a tremendous amount about the secret service. I learned about procedure. I learned about, um, cover and extraction. Um, you know, Jerry Parr, who was the man that had, um, pushed Reagan into the limousine when Reagan was shot, president Reagan was shot, um, walked me through the entire episode all of it, every beat of it. You know, if you've ever been in a car accident, you know how you can remember every detail when it got critical with the crash. And it's because your iris and your eye speeds up. So your camera is filming a lot faster. And he was able to convey to me the speed at which that was occurring. Every, every instance, every intersection, every, every decision, which we, which we later put on screen when President Bartlett was uh, shot. Um, but I digress. I was, I was given a tremendous amount of information by guys who were heroic, in my opinion. You know, when you're, when you're a human shield and when you're willing to be a human shield at, at a moment's notice and you'd be amazed at how quickly they have to respond. Is it a handshake? Is it a weapon? Is it, I mean, it, the, the, the rapidity with which those decisions get made. Um, so I felt a tremendous obligation to represent them with dignity. And part of the dignity was I felt there, there had to be moments of humanity. There had to be places that we got to see, not just the, their profession, but their person. And it just happened, and I didn't know about the 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 thing that with Zoe being kidnapped until I was until the script landed. And uh, I remember 
the sense of running to John because I cared about that girl in a personal way. I cared about that daughter, that family. I'm, I'm protecting POTUS, but they are part of POTUS for me. And so when she was kidnapped and it was a corporate failure for the Secret Service, my Secret Service had failed. It was emotional on a lot of levels. Uh, but the most was it that she was she was specific to me. She was familiar to me. She was something that that a man who I spent years trying to protect cared for more than anything. And um, so, so I remember seeing John's face and and having to tell him. And the even now the difficulty of having to say we failed, we've lost his daughter. Now I haven't seen that for some time, but it sticks with me. And you think about mm -hmm. okay, what a wonderful thing that you have a job where you can you can affect the audience so that a middle-aged guy watching this years ago still remembers it. Now, what does that mean to you? You know, I, I think it's the best of what I get to do. I think it's the best of, you want to, you know, and I played some good guys, that was a good guy. And I played some really bad guys. And uh, they both have an effect um, I, I'd like to think it's the humanity of both characters that, that uh, and sometimes the loss of contact with humanity that has the ability to move. Um, but it, it's more than the job. It is, it is the gift of it. I, I've always thought if I could do something in a way that a person watching it would go, wait, I, I've thought that. I, I, I've felt that. Oh, I, I know what that is, then I've done a really good job. Um, but also the thing you're talking about is if you can do something and move them, you know, you can, you, it, it has a lasting impact. It touches them in a place that they're vulnerable, vulnerable enough to be touched in at that moment. And then it prints. Then uh, as an actor, you, you know, it's as huge a gift to me, I think, even more so than it is to the audience. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit AmericanAchievers.us and hit the premium membership button. Special thanks to Gold Achievers Wayne Atchison, Courtney Caramico, and Ross Stewart. And Silver Achievers Kim Distel, Johnny Landrum, Ronnie Marks, and Larry McCoy. Check out my books, including definitive biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers at KeithDunavant.com or your favorite bookseller. My latest, Speed, test pilot Bob Gilliland and the development of the SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. When you're in a moment like that, mm -hmm. and you've you've done all the preparation, uh, you you've, you're invested in the character because you've been playing it for a while. How does it feel when you absolutely nail it and you know it? Wow! Oh my gosh! I played quarterback for the New York Giants. Um, <laughs> You know, it, it is it is a stunning feeling. 
you know, when it when it happens and the surprise happens and the life happens and and you just it's not that you're transported. You never leave, you know, who and what you are. It's just that you're using the best of yourself, I think. And uh, in in the realization of uh, of the collaboration more than anything, I'm totally relying on John Spencer in that when I see Spencer's face, I know exactly where I am. And, you know, that's the beauty of it is the, the quality of really good acting is dependent upon the other actor, not so much yourself. If you can really listen and pay attention to them, then, then they'll give you the, you know, what you need. Um, but it, it, yeah, I mean, I'm grateful that you bring that one up because there, there've been a lot of things that I've done where I didn't, you know, swing and a miss. I didn't quite, eh, that's not quite true. The opportunity wasn't there. I remember an acting teacher saying to me once, there'll be roles that you get that you're not going to be able to put all of you into. It's a vessel and the vessel is too small to hold all of that. If you do, it's just going to run over the sides and to make a huge mess. So don't do it. Do the vessel, do your job. And so there've been a lot of those, but you point out one that means a lot to me that and um, the moments in the car with the president, you know, Keith, I, I listened to your conversations and your, you know, with the, the achievers. And I think of these guys as real achievers, Neil Leifer, I listened to his and just, but he said something in the course of it and it almost got by me. He talked about the difference between, you know, a, a pretty good amateur photographer and a really good photographer is that when the moment happens, they don't miss it. And it, it, I had to stop the, the, the podcast. I had to stop it because I thought that's, he just hit it. When the moment occurs, you don't want to miss it. And so I think that's the, the great, um, the great gift of acting, of the payback of acting, because it's hard, you know, it's emotionally expensive. You are going to lose a role you don't want. You're not going to make the money you want to make. You're going to drive the Honda. They're going to drive the BMW. You're going to, you know, you're, you're, you're always going to live with the uncertainty. I don't know where my next job is coming from. I don't even know if there'll be a next job. I may be retired. They don't give you a gold watch. It, it's expensive, but those moments make it worth it. So don't miss them because you don't know when they'll come around again. Are, are you, do you savor those moments more now than you did 20 years ago? Yes. And I've only started a, of late. And I think the reason I started was that I, I never looked back. I, I refused to look back. It was always about the next job. And um, something happened recently. I don't know exactly what it was, but I glanced over my shoulder and I realized that I'd had a career and I know that kind of sounds silly, but it's true. I, I didn't know I had a career until I looked back and went, wait a second. Um, you've been doing this for a long time and you've continued to do it and you did what you set out to do. You got better at it. Um, you know, there's that, that wonderful uh, Maya Angelou, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but she had a thing that basically said, you know, when I had a little, I did what I could. And when I, I got more, I did better. 
And so that was my goal. As I, I got more, I wanted to make sure I did better with it. Um, and it's funny, you know, there's this wonderful apocryphal story about acting. There were two guys, two young guys in the Warner Brothers has a commissary. You could go in and have lunch there, you know, and they're talking back and forth. And there's an old character actors, you know, middle-aged character actor sitting next to him. And the young guy kept going, well, I don't know. I really don't know if I should do this role. I don't know if it's good for my career. And I, you know, it's back and forth. And then the other guy would come in, the guy would come in and says, well, you know, it'd be, I'm just not sure it'd be good for my career. And the, and the older, you know, character actor leaned across the table, excuse me, son. He said, I never do this. I, I don't, I don't mean to intrude in your conversation, but if I just may say this, you don't have a career. You, you have an opportunity at a job. And then you hope you get an opportunity at another job. And if you do that enough and you're fortunate enough to have a bunch of them, you can look back on a career. And, and I thought that's kind of what happened to me. You know, I was lucky enough to get a job and then I was lucky enough to get another job. And I, and I, and I don't use the word luck, um, you know, euphemistically, it's, there's a tremendous amount of good fortune in my industry. I know a lot of very, very, very talented people that don't work as much as I do. And it's not because they don't have more talent than I do. I've kind of always been lucky. And I remember once I got to work with Alan Alda on the West Wing, actually, Alan Alda. And I said, what, what, what advice do you give young? And he said, oh, my advice, above all else, be lucky. So, Well, if, if people look you up on IMDb, <laughs> your, uh, your number of roles is just beyond belief uh, for someone your age. And uh, what do you attribute that to beyond luck? You know, it's funny because um, when I was told that you wanted to uh, interview me um, I, I, in an American achiever, and I thought, gracious sakes, surely I'm not sure I'm considered an American achiever. And, and the only thing that I feel that I've, that I have really achieved, Keith, is longevity. Um, that's been the achievement of my career is that I've, I've had a longevity about it. Look, some of it's the good fortune of being, you know, my age and having a mustache and being Caucasian and um, in a period of time when they were writing a lot of roles for that, that that's, I don't discount any of that. I'd like to think that I contributed to the set that I was on. Um, I, I saw older actors that I respected and I saw the way they behaved on set. And um, I felt um, I felt it incumbent upon me to keep the tradition alive as a kind of institutional memory. The way you treat people, the way you treat your crew, the way you welcome a guest star to your cast, those are all important things. So I'd like to think that they had something to do uh, with the longevity of the career. Um, it's not quantifiable, um, but I, I feel like that I've, I feel like that I showed up prepared. I understood the job and I wanted to make a contribution as I could. And um, I tried to miss as few of those moments as I could. So I, I guess that's what I would, I would attribute it to if I can own something inside of it, outside of the great good fortune of, uh, you know, being 
what I call drag kicking and streaming into a better life. Well, what was the one role that was the most difficult for you and why? Can I answer another question before I answer that question? Sure. Um, you asked me what the big what the big break was, and I said Ghost Story is my first big break. The West Wing was a huge break. It, it's inestimable, inestimable. You know what I'm trying to say in terms of what an impact that that had, because you're talking about a show that was one of the, if not the top show in the in the world, at the, you know, in the television world at that time. And so it, what it did for me was it. I always said the the industry was like a membrane. Sometimes you would slide through and you would be in, and then you'd get pushed back out. Well, the West Wing pulled me inside the membrane and kept me there. I've never been outside of it again. And it's because of the popularity of that and the, you know, and the things that Aaron wrote for me to do um, and that they trusted me with and the education that the Secret Service gave me. You know, I almost missed it. I really almost missed it. My agents called me. I hadn't been working in a while. My wife had just had twins. Um, and they called me with a one-day role. And I said, have you seen the writing on the show? I'm not blowing the show for one day. Stop it. And they came back and said, Michael, last time we looked, you hadn't worked since February. This is August. And uh, we think you should take the role or at least go in and read for it. Because I had to audition for it. I didn't, they didn't offer me that role. And I went in and I said, oh, okay. And, uh, and I went in and read. And Chris Missiano was the director of that episode. It was called Mr. Willis of Ohio, the sixth one they shot. And I stammered and stuttered and messed up the first take. And I will say this about Aaron's writing, which is what you ask. It is the most specific, the most beautifully rhythmic. It travels, but arrives in the most unexpected way. You think you know where you're going and then something very unexpected turns. And it's, you know, it, it, I, don't, I don't want to say poetic. It's too, it's overused. He found his calling. There is a brilliance at the end of the nub of that pen that that's just, you know, it's unparalleled. And he caught something. Um, he caught lightning in a bottle and that cast was, you know, the New York theater actors, everybody but Rob, they all knew what a great ensemble was. They knew what they had in terms of great writing. And uh, boy, they lit it up. You know, Spencer, Allison, Janney, you know, Richard Schiff, uh, Martin, of course, Rob, um, and you can continue down the line, but, um, I've lost the thread, forgive me, but in answer to your question, um, every once in a while, you just bump into brilliance and that's what it was like working for Aaron Sorkin. And you were going to answer, uh, my question about the, uh, the most difficult role. You know, I think the most difficult role for me, and it, in in a in a funny tangential way, it's connected to the West Wing, was a character I played on Grey's Anatomy. And he was a man who really only had his wife in the world, and his wife got sick. She had a cancer. They operated. They they, you know, were able to save her life, and she was in remission. And uh, but during that that uh, they had she had signed a do not resuscitate order and she went back for a small recurrence of the cancer uh, had a stroke on the table they put her in icu they felt like she was going they were gonna they were gonna unplug her and i because of the d dnr they were gonna unplug her and i begged them whatever you do please please don't please don't please don't 
uh, and they they did by law they did and he sat with her and watched her go and was unhinged by it unhinged in enough of a way to come back into that hospital you know four or five episodes later with a nine millimeter handgun and start and you know the most heinous of all acts you know the senseless taking of human life and um i had it's the only time I've ever been called at home by an executive producer. Well, once Tommy Schlamy called me, but it was something else. And Shonda Rhimes called and said, Michael, uh, I'm working on this character and I, I, I think I think you would be really good for it. And she began to explain it. And I said, Shonda, please stop. Miss Rhimes, please stop. I don't know that I can do this. Um, I just don't know that I can do it. And I, and I don't know that I want to do it. And she, she, I said, may I call you back? Again, one of those things. And I talked to my wife about it and I talked to friends. About it. I had had somebody in my family murdered in Montgomery when I was a kid and not even a kid, a young adult. And, and, and I knew that, you know, families never recover from that. They never do. They find different ways of, of living with it, but they don't recover from that. And, you know, I, I, every time we have, you know, a, a, a buffalo or Uvalis or, or, or it just, I, 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 I'm ill. I get ill by it because I played this character who, who did this. And so uh, that's the most difficult thing I've ever done. Probably some of the best work I've ever done in that I, I was insistent at every turn of holding on to his humanity, the pain that he was in that was driving him to act so that you understood it was a person who had lo totally lost their capacity to understand what they're doing or, or, or discern right from wrong. They were just in so much pain. They were going to strike out at anything and everything that doesn't, by the way, that doesn't excuse that it's not an excuse. It doesn't, there's, there's no excuse for it. I just wanted to make sure that it was folded into the character, but it was Gray's anatomy and uh, I'm still recognized a lot from it, you know, it's generated its own kind of celebrity, but it was a hard, hard, hard role to do and a very hard um, thing to live with for a long time. Have you learned to, to live with that now, or is that something you still still carry with you, the, the, the pain of that? I learned to live with it until something happens, like this past three weeks. And then it's then it's back, you know, and I probably shouldn't say this. I, I, in some respects, it's probably better if I don't even talk about it, but uh, because I had a job as an actor. And my wife said, you know, take a look at, um, at um, what Anthony Hopkins did with um, the butterfly film, uh, Silence of the Lambs. And I, I have since read an interview or, or heard him speak about this. He thought it was the end of his career. He totally believed that would end his career. And I got a call the next morning after it aired from a casting director that said, Michael, it's brilliant work what you did, but you won't work for a year. Nobody's going to be able to touch you. You know, you can shave your head, shave your mustache, going upside down. They're not going to be able to touch you for a while. And uh, it was a long time. It was a long time. And that, you know, that was, that was hard, too, to have to live with that as the last thing I'd done. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation.
I got a role on the only Dick Wolf show that hasn't gone, you know, that didn't, did not, it's not been on the air for 10 years and it was called law and order LA. And I got a role as a, uh, a defense attorney. And I got to work with Alfred Molina. Oh my gosh. You know, there's Alfred Spencer, Alfred Molina, you know, uh, Matt Damon. I've been very, very fortunate with some of the, you know, some of the people that I've worked with since Mr. Stair, Mr. Douglas, Patricia Neal. And you got to work uh, with uh, Eastwood on one of his movies. Tell me about that experience. I, oh my gosh. Well, um, it was Jay Edgar. And I was working with Leonardo DiCaprio and I played uh, Kenneth McKellar. McKellar had been the longest serving senator in the U.S. Senate. He was from Memphis, Tennessee. And I didn't even find that character until I went to the wardrobe fitting because the wardrobe mistress had a photograph of him. And it was one of the most revealing things I've ever seen. There was a, he, there was a fellow talking to him and the old Senator McKellar had his thumb hitched in his lapel. And he was kind of listening to him out of one ear. wasn't really looking at him, but that thumb caught me. And I thought, oh, I know who this man is. He's an old horse trader. And he's not going to give away anything that he didn't have to give away. But you don't cross him if you can help it. So the, the scene in Mr. Eastwood's film, and, you know, there are a lot of things about him that are that Mr. Eastwood that are just remarkable. He never says action and he never yells cut. He'll walk up. Camera's already rolling. I don't know how they know that. Sound is already rolling. And he looks at his actors and goes, you may begin. And so you start your scene. And then the dialogue runs out. And you hope, he says, and you can stop. You can stop. Sometimes he doesn't say anything. And then you're in that place that every actor always dreads because you've run out of dialogue and you're just looking at your other actor thinking, is it my line? Did I drop a line here? Did I, oh my God, I forgot something. Oh, what, Mr. Eastwood's waiting for me. There's all this stuff going on in your head. Your eye, you're spinning and he's getting every moment of it. And then he can use it wherever he wants to. If he decides he wants to cut it in, <laughs> he's certainly got it. And then he'll go, oh, you can stop. So he was, there's a, there's a wonderful, brilliant method to his filmmaking. Very, very fast. You don't want to fool around. Uh, I've been told by Matt Damon, you may only get one take. So I, of course, in my nervous way, screwed up during the rehearsal. And he came over to me very quietly and said, you need to pick that up. Yes, sir. <laughs> oh, excuse me, sir. Could, could I buy a pause right here? And he turned that, that Eastwood eye on me said, you can buy it if you earn it. And so we shot the scene and he used very, very few close-ups in J. Edgar, but he, once I, once I landed the pause that I was after and he saw what I was doing, he turned the camera around and put it in my left eye. And Leonardo to his generous, generous credit, the flags were set up in such a way because of the lighting that I couldn't see him. And I'm not so good that I don't need my other actor. And I'll be darned if he didn't find a tiny little sliver of a space between two flags to put his eye. So I had it to play to. And uh, I thought, yeah, there's a reason that guy's a star. Um, 
but anyway, it was it was an extraordinary experience. I also had the problem that I was trying to do the scene and I kept looking over at Mr. Eastwood because he was a big star to me. And I'm supposed to be looking out over the Senate hearing room and I keep looking down the looking down the row at Mr. Eastwood. Uh, fortunately, I didn't get in trouble for it. One of your most memorable roles was uh, in Seabiscuit. I love that movie. I, you know, mm. greatly affected by the book uh, by Laura Hillebrand. And um, tell me about your character, Mr. Pollard. Uh, one of my proudest moments, and thank you for bringing it up. You know, it, it was Pollard was. It's it's funny, Keith, because. Pollard was better developed in the film than he was in the book, which is very, very unusual, very unusual. But Gary Ross, our director and the writer of the film, decided that he needed something in, in the boy's journey to being a jockey. We, need to under, we needed to understand more of his background. And, and, and Laura had planted all the, you know, the cues. She'd left all the cues to this. But the way it was written, um, I started out as a very wealthy man. And uh, I adored this boy and wanted very badly to, to make available to him whatever his interests were and had the means to do that. And he showed some inclination, some um, talent on horseback. So I bought him a hot red, you know, a thoroughbred, a, a really good horse in our, back in our day. Mr. Pollard, my character, lost all his money during the Depression. He was in the banking industry, and he never made money again. And I, I found out that he really only saw Red ride one time. His friends and family pulled together enough for him to get a train ticket across Canada. He lived in Toronto. He took a train ticket across Canada uh, and saw Red ride in Vancouver. And his um, his manager at the time wouldn't even let him visit his father he had to get back up on another mount and so mr pollard got back on the train didn't even stay the night got back on the train and went back to toronto there's a moment that is so haunting and so um microcosmic of the depression and and so many things that went through when your character has to essentially give his son away yes Tell me about that scene. It, it's maybe my favorite scene I've ever done. Um, I had three small children at the time. Uh, what happened was is that in, in his inability to, to support his family, my character, to support his family during the Depression, Red had gone off to some dirt track in you know, California and, and uh, made $2. And I realized when he showed me the money that he was about to become the primary caretaker of the family. And that the only chance that he had was for me to let him go, to give him away. And it's interesting because the director had not written it that way, Keith, he had written it that I had abandoned him. And when I went in to do the audition, I had a, a pillowcase filled with books and I was to give him the books and the scene. I said, there's even, even your Milne from when you were a little boy. And that was the only thing that I had left to give him was his books to send him into the world. And I couldn't let go of the, of the pillowcase during the audition. And I lost it. I started to cry and the whole room started to cry. So when they cast me, um, 
Gary Ross said to me, I didn't see it that way. I saw it as an abandonment, but I don't want to take anything away from you as an actor. You do it however you feel it. So he gave me license to play the scene the way you and I understand it was that the only gift that I could give that child was to give him away, hard as it was. And uh, that, you know, that comes back up on me all the time. And again, I had three small children and the, the notion the, the, the consideration of a parent having to give a child away was excruciating for me, still is. Um, but I, I'm so grateful for that role. I, I don't know that I'll have what they would call a, a filmography or, or, or whatever at the end of days. But if, if there's any remembrance, I hope it's that scene. What motivates you now? <laughs> well, you know, um, I just, my, my third daughter is graduating, uh, from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in a week. So I, it's my last of my college tuitions. So I, I, that motivated me for a long time. Um, but that's not what you're talking about. You're, you're talking about the the flame to act, the spark to act. And there's still some glasses that I want to break. You know, uh, there, there's still some um, things that I want to play. I, I, I always knew, even when I was young, that I would be better older. I was never going to be a juvenile. I was never going to be uh, interesting, you know, until I had some weather on me. So in, in some respects, I've kind of come into my time. Whether or not it's the industry's time, I, I have no control over that, but I do feel like it's my time that I have more to bring now and, and I want to share it, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to, it, I, I've been given a, an unexpectedly good life um, uh, with, you know, the challenges of that, it, that every life has, but I've been able to do what a lot of people consider unusual. Very few people know my name, you know, they just know my face. And that's wonderful for a character actor. They don't, they don't need to know my name. Let them think I'm the police officer or the, you know, the electrician or the, I get, I still get the guy who landed that plane on the Hudson river. Hey, you did a good job landing that plane. And I just say, thank you and move on. Um, but I, I've been doing it so long that, that part of why I continue to do it is I have the habit of the muscle. I still want to show up. I still want to show up prepared. Um, uh, I like winning the room, you know, I, I like going in and somebody's sleepy from a turkey sandwich at lunch. And that's the guy I'm going after in my audition. That's the guy that this thing's going to be pointed at because he's not going to get to sleep through my audition. Um, so whatever those little motivations are and, and there, and they are, and there's, you know, I don't, I don't have any grand objectives. I, I don't need any awards. Um, I, I, I'm really happy that, you know, that I've had the career that I've had. Um, I just hope to keep going. A few years back, you uh, started alternating between L.A. And, and Birmingham, where your father was, was ill. Yeah. Tell me about that experience. <laughs> I love my dad. My dad wasn't perfect, and he had his demons. But... Uh, I don't doubt that he loved me and, you know, wanted, wanted, uh, the best for me. And, uh, I, I wanted very badly. I didn't want my dad to pass alone. And so when, 
he had a stroke and I was with him when he had it. And I saw my dad had great hands. My grandfather had been a brick mason. He had great working hands. And my dad got those hands too. They just big old mitts and then the end of the arm, but they were skilled. And I saw his hand betrayed, you know, it just, he, he looked at it with such puzzlement because it refused to do what he wanted to do. He couldn't get it under him. And, uh, and they all, you know, all hell broke loose. The, the bells went off and they called code 99 or whatever they called and get me this doctor and get me that doctor. And they, they took him, they literally took him away from me. And I followed him down the hall and they put him in ICU and they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't let me in. And I, and I begged the nurse, the last person that I could get a hand on, I said, don't let him die alone. Please don't let, if, if this is taking him, make sure that I'm with him, get me. And, um, it didn't kill him immediately. He lasted for, for seven days. Um, and we talked, he couldn't speak. I don't know that. I don't even know if he could hear me, but we talked about a lot of stuff. And, um, I stayed with him 24 seven and, uh, my hand was on my father's heart when it stopped. And, uh, I was able to tell him you go now you go. And uh, I'm grateful that I got to be there. I'm just grateful that I got to be there. You know, my wife said, we need to go back to Alabama. We need to go back to Birmingham. If you're going to spend time with your dad, you have to do it now. And uh, I think it was great for both of us, but uh, I'll never forget the intimacy of that moment, you know, and just sitting with him after he'd gone, you know, and I, I continued to talk to him. Uh, and you learn something about this life when somebody leaves it, you know, there's, there's nothing like a, uh, uh, there's nothing like a, uh, an infant being born, seeing a birth or seeing someone pass to put life into perspective for a while. And, and it so comes crashing back in, you know, life, life just, it, it does this thing where it, it, it gets so immediate that you can't hold on to that, that, real perspective you you have to hold on to the little microcosm that's in front of you but uh, my dad gave me that in his going you've played so many memorable roles do they inhabit you in a way that that affects the way that you see the world sometimes you know the the industry has sped up a good deal we don't like if I go on a film, I don't go for the four months of the film. I'll go, you know, for the first two weeks of filming or the first four days of filming. Then they'll send me home and then they'll bring me back and then they'll try to, you know, it, it, and it's it's really a corp corporatization uh, of the way the industry works now. You know, they're they're it, we're we're part of a multinational corporation and they have a formula for things and the formula includes cutting costs. And so you're not really on a on a project for as long, you, you grab bites of it and you better remember your bites. But some of them do, you know, Butterfield, the West Wing affected me. I think it made me a, a better, it, it, it made me aspire to be a, a better person. The Grey's Anatomy uh, affected me. There were periods of time when I would get up in the middle of the night and walk the perimeter of my yard. I was afraid something was coming for my family. And that was, that's part of the dysfunction, you know, that not the dysfunction, but the, the psychology of the character, 
and you know you do them for a while and then they tap you on the shoulder and do you for a while so there have been a few seabiscuit wow seabiscuit had a profound effect on me for a while because of the way I, the way i would watch my children changed um but yes there there are those that i think that if that have put something in my column you know and and it's refused to leave and it's probably helped me weather because i i do believe it takes something to weather um the rejection of my industry and i i think you know when i think about our our place where we came from when i think about jenny or my aunt nez or my parents or Auburn or Alabama, whatever it is, something was put in our column that allowed us to continue to do this against great odds. Um, and that those roles kind of put a little plaster where there was a crack, you know, or uh, just helped me help sustain me in a way to go, yes, I'm on the journey. You know, Will said a wonderful thing to me he, he, he saw how eager I was to learn and how clumsy I was at it. And he said, son, let me just say this to you. When, when you look back on this, it's, it's, it'll be the road going, not the getting there that you'll enjoy the most. That's what you'll remember. That's what you'll savor. And it, I've only lately begun to understood what he was trying to teach me from the wisdom of 75 year old to the, you know, the greenness of a 21 year old, it's the road going. And, uh, I've had a pretty good road. Um, certainly a very fortunate one. What do you think that, uh, your journey says about the American experience? Um, it probably, if it says anything, it says the tenacity is the most important aspect of it. Please maintain an ethic, you know, maintain an ethic about it. Know what you, what you will and won't do. Try to, try to, you know, maintain some personal values inside of it, but the tenacity of it is what, is what the achievement is. That's the, look, it, it, you know, I'm sorry, it wasn't talent, it was tenacity. And I think that, you know, when I look at the, when I look at people who I, who I admire, who I respect, who I, and, and, you know, listen, you got to be tenacious to raise a family. You got to, you have to be tenacious to, to pursue a livelihood of, um, you know, a, um, a, a, a podcast, um, whatever it is, you know, it, it, it's not, it doesn't have to be highly visible. It doesn't have to show up on the big screen, 40 feet high. Most of us have a, you know, certain pathology anyway, if you got to be 40 feet high to be seen, the quiet tenacity, uh, you know, of sustaining and maintaining a, a family, um, you know, of, of the, of the work that we do with dignity, whatever that is, that, that, that to me, I think is the thing that I admire most. Uh, about the American achiever, said so just flat wouldn't give up. There's going to come a time, yes. hopefully, way in the future, when your phone's going to stop ringing. <laughs> How are you going to deal with that? You know, um, 
it's funny. Uh, there's a there's a part of me that feels like it's making preparation for that. You know, there's a there's a part of me that's stepping outside. But fortunately for me, and I do mean this in every sense of the word, my wife loves me. You know, it's never been about I never had to prove myself to her. I think I'll be very, very happy to take long walks, play pickleball, hold her hand and uh, watch TV at night, you know, and I'm sure there'll be a moment or two. Of, I could have done that. I don't know why they didn't cast me in that, you know. Well, they're good, but shoot, I could have done it. Um, I don't doubt that there'll be those moments, but I think more than anything, I'll just look back on the on the the complete unlikelihood that this is where I would end up. You know, it just there was nothing to indicate that this was where I was going, and yet uh, to have been fortunate enough to make a living in this industry and the people that I've worked with. You know, I, I, there's a litany of of people that you know Don Cheadle and you know Andy Garcia and and Alfred Woodard and James Earl Jones and, and, uh, you know, Matt Damon and, uh, you know, Matthew McConaughey and Michael Caine, Bobby Duvall. I mean, I've gotten to play with people at the top of their game. And I'd like to think when I look out, look back on it, I didn't let the ball hit the floor. Thanks to Lane McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever. <laughs>